Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Bad Beats episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about to make the legendary worst deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Royal-Smith. Today we're with Marcos Anturelli, and we're going to be talking about uh, some of Marco's worst deals here today. And we all know worst deals are the things that we learn from the most if we look at them correctly. So today, Marco is going to be sharing with us some of the lessons that he's learned along his investment journey that he had to learn the hard way. So Marco, thank you for joining me here today. And if you'd like, would you like to give us just like a quick background of who you are and, and so that listeners can get an idea of what kind of information you're bringing to the table today? Sure. Scott, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. A little bit about me is I got, fortunately or unfortunately, I jumped into real estate when I first turned 18 years old. And why it was 18 is because I could qualify for financing. But I bought my first rental, fixed it up and leased it out. And that's when the writing was on the wall. So I slowly pursued that path while being an entrepreneur and having multiple businesses. But if you fast forward to 2003 and 2004, that's when I ultimately got back into real estate investing a hot and heavy way. The real estate markets were really hot. Everybody, it seems, and the taxi driver were a so-called real estate investor. Most of these people were speculators and just in trying to flip properties in different markets, especially markets like Southwest Florida, Las Vegas, and Phoenix, where you know these were ground zero for the uh, foreclosure mess that we saw in 2008. But I had accumulated a large portfolio in a very short period of time over the course of 2004 and 05. Most of that was buy and hold, but there were some wholesale deals and flips. But the beautiful thing that came out of all of that was the current business that I have today. And that 14 and a half years later is a business where we, as you know, Scott, we help real estate investors, other people acquire cash flowing rental properties in different markets around the country. And so today we operate in 18 different markets selling turnkey rental properties that are cash flow from day one, uh, fully managed, completely hands off turnkey. We don't partner in those. They're 100% the investors. But that's what came out of that whole 2003-2004 venture back into real estate on a full-time basis. Have I been successful? Yes. Have I had my fair share of punches in the gut? Sure. And the best thing we can do as real estate investors is learn from those mistakes and those landmines that we step on and look back and say, okay, what went wrong? How can we avoid doing that again? And we kind of blaze the trail for others to follow behind us. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a lot to be said about learning from my own mistakes. I typically would prefer to learn from somebody else's anytime I can. But definitely the ones that hit us in the gut the most are the ones we you know, really are, have to look back and say, what's the postmortem, right? So to speak, of like, how did that deal go dead? And how didn't I see that ahead of time? You know, one of the things that I'm sure you've run into before, Mark, and that I've run into myself is about just the level of great deal and a bad deal a lot of times it starts pretty much starts the same, doesn't it? With high levels of excitement, thinking that you're going to make a bunch of money, right? Yeah, it does. I mean, whenever you look at a deal, if you ultimately determine that that is a good deal, you're obviously going to be excited about it. It's natural to be excited about it because now you realize, hey, I've got a good deal. And that may not always be the case. Sometimes you make a mistake on the analysis, on the numbers, on the scope of work. If you're doing a renovation, you could make an error in your judgment on the neighborhood. 
which is a critical piece. And I've learned and something we teach our clients and the investors that listen to us and follow us that you can't look at the property and the property only. And that's really not your starting point. You should always start with the macro picture, the market itself, call it macroeconomics, but you start with the market and then you work your way down to the suburbs and the neighborhoods and the neighborhood being very critically important. And then you look at the property and then you determine whether it's a good deal. That's when you start doing the analysis on the condition of the property. Is there deferred maintenance? Are there capital expenditures coming up now or in the near future? What are the numbers? Are they real? Are you factoring in vacancy allowance? Are you factoring in maintenance and repairs? Is it currently leased? If so, what kind of tenant do you have in there? What's their income versus their rent? Who's managing it? Are, are they reputable? Do they have a lot of assets under management? How long have they been doing management? You don't want, this is one of the lessons I learned early on in 2004. I made the mistake unknowingly that I was building a portfolio and I had a bunch of properties in the beginning under management by a real estate agent who was not a professional property manager. She knew how to manage, but doesn't mean that she was a professional manager. And so I think her breaking point was a relatively small number of properties because she was capable and able to manage a handful of properties. But as that number grew and I started putting dozens of units under management with her, she not only was incapable of managing those properties, but to make matters worse, she ended up stealing money from me because a lot of the rents that were collected were collected in terms of cash. And some of these people didn't even have bank accounts. And so she was pocketing some of that money. And then the day that I fired her was the day when I found out that she had stolen $6,000 from me, claiming to have sent it to me, but really never having put it in the mail. And so... Wow, that is incredible. Literally claimed that that got lost in the mail. $6,000 got lost in the mail? She claims to have dropped it off at UPS, which was how she was sending it to me. But there was no tracking number. She didn't have a receipt or a tracking number to to give to me to prove that she had dropped it off. And she was pawning it off on the person at the UPS store saying that they that they stole it. Well, I can't prove whether they stole it or whether she had stolen it. All I know is I didn't receive it. Yeah. But I bet that you knew something was up with her like way before that, right? I mean, your gut had to tell you something, right? Yeah, my gut was telling me that this wasn't the right way. This wasn't the best way. I was kind of married to this woman a little bit in the sense that she was the one finding me the deals. I was working with her as a real estate agent. So I gave her the management business. In hindsight, I should have separated those roles. I should have had checks and balances in place, but brought in professional management. Obviously, we talk about that every single day now. But back then, it just was an obvious choice. Yeah, well, I mean, what? how do you leave somebody, right, that you're also halfway dependent on, right? That's like one of those breakups where you're like, I'm still half in love with you, but I know this isn't a good relationship. <laughs> yeah, I guess. The right decision would have been to not give her anything to manage right from the get-go, just not even set foot down that road, just brought in a professional management company that was separate from her. Yeah, but I can understand why you didn't, though. Because I think there's a lot of good reasons not to, like from that position, right? Because it's easier just to deal with one person. She probably told you she could do both and do great at it, right? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, I knew her long enough to know that I, I found her to be responsive and reliable, but that was as, a, as, a, as an agent and not as a property manager. Holy smoke. So even though like she was really good in one capacity working for you, that it was pretty similar, like her ability to actually manage something that was other than herself, really, right? 
that's like me asking you as my asset protection attorney to also be my property manager. You might, you might know how to do it, but you might not be good at it. Yeah, fair enough, right? Yeah, man, lesson learned, right? You just got to hire the professionals in the field. But sometimes you can save a lot of money, right? By stacking people's skill sets together where you have one person that kind of pools. Because you probably don't have like a thousand employees, right? One for each individual task. You usually think of like, okay, what kind of person can do multiple things at one time because it saves you money, right? I don't know if that would have saved me money because even if she was giving me a discount, let's just say 8% management fee versus 10 or 7 versus 8, 9, 10. Sure, that's a saving. But the thing is, is individuals only, as a person, you only have so much time in the day. We all work with 24 hours, so there's only so much you can do. I believe there's a lot of truth in focusing on and spending time on what you do best. Like what gives you a lot of excitement, drive, passion? What are you great at? That's what you should focus on. And then outsource the rest. Like let other people handle the parts that you are not so good at or that you don't enjoy doing. To have a real estate agent be your real estate agent and your property manager and then be a parent on top of that, and whatever else she does is too much. Yeah, well put, right? Like really being cognizant of the fact of when people are going to get overloaded and and actually just start to do crazy stuff like that they otherwise might not ever do, right? But you never know about people's lives too, right? Like how somebody could steal $6,000 for you for probably a really good reason, you know? Otherwise, they probably wouldn't steal it. But right. still, you have to be like aware of that. And I mean, we already drove into a worse deal about this lady and we haven't even jumped into the actual investment itself. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> this is a two for episode, everybody. Buckle up. Yeah. <laughs> so, Marco, I know we were going to talk about um, an actual investment that our went sideways, our investment strategy that went sideways for you. What exactly was that investment? Well, I wouldn't really say it was one specific property. Let's talk about this in terms of a strategy. Our core business, I want to differentiate for your audience. So the core business, what we've been doing very successfully for the last 14 and a half years is, is our turnkey real estate business, which is Norada Real Estate Investments. Alongside of that, I created a sister company that was completely separate where we were acquiring distressed properties, mostly from the auction, fixing them up, creating them into like new condition as turnkey rentals. And that became some of the inventory, the turnkey rental properties that we were selling and helping our investor clients with through Norada Real Estate. So it was really just a drop in the bucket. It was a small amount of the properties that we actually help our clients acquire, but it became a small business that grew large. And so over the course of the last three and a half years, we were rehabbing, I say we, mostly me with the help of some partners, but we would have anywhere from, let's say 15 to as many as 30 homes being renovated at any given time. So we have 15 to 30 properties at a time somewhere in the pipeline, acquisition, through renovation, you know, under contract for sale. And in the beginning, it was profitable. It worked out well. And by the way, I want to make sure your audience understands that what I'm talking about is really a very, very active role, a very active way of being involved in real estate. I don't call it investing. It's really a transactional business where you're flipping or yeah, you're essentially flipping property. It's transactional. You might be in and out in three months. You might be in and out in six months. But that's not investing. You're making chunks of cash. You're not getting streams of cash. We want our investors and clients that we talk to to take their income, take their savings, take their chunks of cash and convert that into cash flow where you have a stream of cash. And that's where these buy and hold rentals come in that we offer. But going back to this, you know, this flipping business, everything starts off well and you're really excited. And when you get those first few flips done, as long as they're profitable, you get pretty excited. You get addicted to it. 
and you want to do another and another. And all of a sudden, now you realize you've got a very active business that's taking up a lot of your time. And now you need more capital to acquire more property. And now you need more systems in place and you need to manage you know, what you're doing. We started off right out of the gate with a number of properties that we were renovating and flipping. Unfortunately, the very first one, my very first deal that I did under this new business, I lost, I think it was about $17,700. And that wasn't fun. I literally had to stroke a check at the close in order to close for about $17,000 in order for me to pay back the investors, the private money investors that I was working with that I had borrowed money from in order to acquire and fix this property. Fortunately, after that, I made about 15500 on my next deal, 10281 on my third deal, and on it went. So I was probably averaging anywhere from five to 15000 in profit, net profit, on these deals as we went on. And this went on for quite a while. But then as time went on, I came to realize that what was once a baby grew into a monster. It was sucking up more and more of my time. It was becoming more stressful and frustrating as the occasional deal would come up where you'd lose money or you'd put something up for sale and it would take much longer than what you expected it to. So your interest is accruing on it more and more. And it was becoming more problematic and appraisals weren't coming in. Inspections were typically okay, but you have picky buyers. And so they are making additional requests that cost additional monies. And so that cuts into your profit. To make a long story short, you know, you fast forward three and a half years into that, where you've built yourself a business, which is really a job when you're not making the kind of money you used to make, and it's also costing you money close, and it's taking up a lot of your time and taking you away from what you're really truly passionate about, what you really enjoy, which was what I was talking about before, you come to the realization that, well, maybe this is not what I should be doing, or maybe this is not the best thing for me, or this is not where I have my my highest and best use. And so I came to that realization early this year. In fact, I started thinking about it late last year. And as I had mentioned to you before, I've made the decision this year, stop taking in private money, scale it down, unload the properties off the books, and just start getting rid of these properties because some of them are going to be profitable. Some of them are going to be losses. I'm not sure at this point in time if it's going to end up being a wash. But looking back, I can just say, hey, you know what? Let's chalk this up to some great experience. It was a good ride when it, while it lasted. And the message for people listening to this is that if you watch HGTV or you watch all these flipping shows on TV, I know some of these people personally. And let's face it, it's reality TV. You know, They're going to show you what they want to show you that makes good good TV, but it's not as sexy or as glamorous as you see on TV. There are a lot of deals that go sideways. There's a lot of problems that come up. There's a lot of money that's lost, not just made. And if this is something you want to pursue, just be prepared. There's going to be a lot of emotional ups and downs. There's going to be a lot of frustration banging a brick on your head. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's one of like the key pieces about flipping houses is that there's so much you need to know. You can really go wrong with it, right? I mean, I think that's what you guys end up doing and focusing on now is something about how can you really get into property to part cash, make a return, and not have to have like the, the roulette wheel, like the highs and lows, kind of the Vegas of flipping, right? Is that kind of the, typically the idea? Yeah, that comes with the business. If you're going to flip property, even if it's just one, you have to understand that nothing is going to go exactly as planned. Once you start doing a demo on the property and you start cleaning it out and tearing whatever out that you need to tear, carpets, cabinets, you know, maybe some wall, 
toilet sink, you're, you weren't going to find other problems. So what you budgeted for initially could increase 10, 20, 30, 50%. I mean, it's not uncommon. So, and then contractors are a challenge too. You're managing people. People are quite the wild card. They, they may be late. They may not show up. That holds up other contractors that are supposed to come in after them to do the next part of the scope of work. And so what you think is like an eight-week job ends up being a 12-week job. And so that's costing you four weeks of extra interest that you're paying for on that property. Plus, it's another four weeks lost in time that you could have been finished in marketing that property for sale. So there's a lot of variables there. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think you're a smart guy. And so it's one of those interesting about it is being a smart guy is that you went down the path initially. Right. Like, was that what led you down there? Was because your friends that you described that were doing the flipping shows and like what you had seen about the fast money of making money on flips that pulled you into it? No. The reason I got into that business is because our core business of selling turnkey rental properties, we were working in about 15 different markets. Today, we're in about 18. But in one of those markets, we were moving a lot of product. And the company I was working with there, the provider, basically our team and boots on the ground came to me and said, hey, we're moving a lot of products. We have a great relationship. I like working with you. Why don't we kind of join forces and and not necessarily marry our companies, but have a joint venture where these are your deals. You're acquiring them. You're putting up the money. You pay me a management fee for it. And then I'll help you acquire, write up the scopes of work, renovate them. And you're kind of the head of it. I'm going to run it underneath you. And then I'm going to bring in my team, my subcontractors, my general contractor, and all those people to to execute it just as we're doing today, but it's really going to be your deals. And so the money being made on it, the profit, the net profit is mine to keep. He just makes his money on the acquisition and management fee that I'm paying him. And so it made sense at the time. And I just decided, well, let's do it. Okay, let's try it out. So we started doing a few deals together and the first handful worked out quite well and it wasn't too time consuming. And then we started to grow it. We started to scale it up. We started to bring in more money. We had, I think, around 5 million in private capital that I had taken in from private investors, individuals, and we were paying them very well in terms of interest. And they were all happy. So everybody was happy. As time went on, emotions changed. I started to become more and more frustrated last year as this became more and more time-consuming and stressful. And there were more problems that were coming up for whatever reasons. And then I just made the decision this year that this is a business I need to wind down so I can put more time and energy focusing on helping other investors, other individuals, achieve their financial goals and achieve financial freedom through buy and hold, not flipping, but buy and hold rental properties, which is goes full circle to what we started doing 14 years ago. Yeah. I mean, well, it sounds like one of the things that, I mean, that sounded like it had a good start to it, but then there seems like there was a shift somewhere along the lines of acquiring more capital and scaling became, that became a problem. Is that, is that a scaling problem just because at low levels, like the amount of touches that you need with in terms of personal interactions with people and systems that just don't really work when you have to have a kind of oversight with contractors when you're trying to do that at a big level, but it's okay at a really small level? I'm not so sure. No, I don't think we're having problems with contractors. I think the first domino to fall was we're seeing prices appreciate pretty much everywhere across the country. I mean, we're in a, a seller's market in virtually every market across the country. And because of that, prices are appreciating or going up faster than rents. And so most of the product, well, when we started, all the product was meant to be turnkey rental properties. And it wasn't until about a year ago that we started to venture out into more and more retail properties, meaning, you know, selling them or flipping them on the MLS to homeowners, not to investors. 
So the first domino to fall was what we started to see about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. As property values continue to appreciate more and more faster and faster, they were outpacing the rent growth. And so the properties that we were acquiring and selling, which had about a 1% rent to price ratio, rent to value ratio, which is essentially saying a $100,000 property is renting for $1,000 a month. That's that 1% what we saw is we saw that change. So now that $100,000 property became $110,000 or $120,000 property, which is fine if the rents increased to $1,200 a month as well, where it maintained that 1% ratio. But what happened is that property is now $120,000 and the rent is maybe $1,050. It went up, but it didn't scale. And so investors were becoming less interested, still interested, but less interested in those particular deals And so it was harder to find the right deal and it was slower to sell them. And we were just having a harder time finding inventory. And that's why we ultimately made the shift to the MLS to flipping homeowners instead of investors. So that was the first domino to fall. And then we were finding more issues with appraisals because the market was rapidly appreciating. We were finding that appraisals, appraisers were becoming very conservative. Again, another stress point. So it was stressful every time we had to go to get financing and the appraiser came back with an appraisal that was below what the true market value was from the comps that we were pulling. And so at that point, we had to negotiate with the buyer to say, hey, well, I understand you got a lower appraisal than the purchase price. The comps are there to support it. The appraiser is being a little bit of a prick about it. And so we had to figure out, okay, well, how do we make this deal work? So our profit margin was being eroded away because of that. And that was the second domino to fall. And so it just became increasingly difficult. And if that wasn't enough, a third problem, which is what I alluded to before, is that inventory has become tighter, much tighter everywhere across the country. And so it's becoming harder and harder to find the right deals that make good deals. So like kind of the fundamental shift then between like what you're looking for in terms of a flip that says this is where flips don't make sense anymore is because you have rising markets, lower inventory, uh, conservative appraisers that are coming through that changes once you start looking to do like a, a key turn buying hold strategy. Well, when your average margins are single digit, that's when you're probably better off putting monies to work elsewhere. If you can generate above 10%, like a double digit return on your net profit on a flip, that's great. Then you're doing well. But when it's a crapshoot, knowing that if you're going to make a negative return or a positive return, that's not a sustainable business. And that's also very stressful emotionally and otherwise. But when you are averaging single digit returns, that is not enough meat on the bone to continue trying to build that business. So you have to either be more selective in terms of what you're buying and more careful in doing your due diligence and making sure that you're not overspending on your budget scope in order to turn a profit. So if that doesn't work, then you have to go into, you have to drop down from B-class neighborhoods to C-class neighborhoods to try and make that margin. I don't like doing that. And then the only other alternative there is to find another market, move to a different market. And I thought about doing that. I might still do that, but I'm not in a rush to do that. Well, there's a huge learning uptick that you have to undergo, right? If you're going to go ahead and say, okay, I'm going to go jump markets. There's the learning curve in learning the market, but if you have the right team on the ground, that shortcuts it. That will help you because now you're leaning on their knowledge of the market and their expertise and you'll learn it as you go. It's not something you're going to do by yourself. Real estate is a team sport. You never do anything by yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we usually talk about saying that you need a deal maker, a CPA, and an attorney uh, as like the three legs of the stool. It's what I typically hear people refer to. Um, 
And is that like typically when you're going into like a new market that you're sourcing new personnel that are there, like boots on the ground, so to speak? I actually have a team ready to go and in place in the greater Chicago metro right now. I haven't pulled the trigger to work with them yet because I'm trying to just unload some of the inventory that I have on the books right now. Once I do that and I can reassess where I stand and what my interest level is, then I'll move forward. But right now, I'm I'm not opening up that market yet. Oh, that's a great market. I think that's a really interesting point about like when you're... sounds like you're already putting together teams like well in advance of just even potentially looking into a marketplace before you go with it. And when you go into that market... Are you typically looking to partner with other people that are experienced investors in that market? Or do you typically just rely on the expertise of your team? I saying, go to professionals that are going to help me through the 90% of what needs to happen here. I was able to put a team together through some people that I know. And so just flying out there, meeting with them, spending time and vetting them out, and then just looking at some of their rehabs that they have going on and touring different neighborhoods gave me enough of a sense to know what they're capable of and whether I can work with them or not, and then continue that relationship forward over the course of many months. But again, I haven't done any business with them yet. But the pump is primed. I mean, they're ready to go. I'm ready to go if I want to move forward. Like I said, I might and I may, but until I actually unload some of this other inventory off the books, I don't want to jump into another rental or another renovation, I should say. Well, awesome. I think what's really cool about this and um, with the few minutes that we have left in, in this episode, I wanted to dive in a little bit about the team aspect of what you have here because this is is almost like a fertile playground of like what could be the next like great deal or worst deal, right? <laughs> it's like what happens with this team and if you pull the trigger on it, it could end up in one of those two categories. Just wondering about that, like it seems to be like embedding a team is something that I get a lot of questions about. It's like how do you find out if somebody is actually for real, if they're good or, or bad or whatnot? And most people haven't ever been employers before, right? So having to vet their own people um, becomes quite a challenge. One of my favorite things to do when I'm betting new people is to take them like on an, like, some type of like extended time together. So here I live in Austin, right? So we have like the Greenbelt, which is this big forested area basically in the center of town. And I'll t- usually we'll go like on an extended like hike with them for like an hour and a half, which might seem kind of stupid. Now have something to do because like what does that have to do with me and the business that you're doing? But I find that in doing that everybody's defenses get dropped down because it's no longer about the thing that they're supposed to be the professional about. It's just kind of spending time talking. Among that, like you get to really see like who is that person? Like what are they really like? And if it's a long enough period of time, a lot of times people just can't bullshit you for that long. Right. Eventually right. they have to show you something that's going on with them and who they really are like as a person. Do you have like a strategy that you found really well that helps you get a good take on somebody's character that you're going to be doing business with? Well, you said it well. I mean, spending time with someone allows you to get to know them on a more personal level. And then I think your your sixth sense and your gut can tell you whether they are full of hot air or they're BSers or not. I think everybody has a BS meter of some kind. Until you actually get into bed together, <laughs> yeah. you'll never really know what that person's like as a business partner or an associate or a professional, but it helps. The more you do, the better off you are, like taking that hike or spending time with them. There are people that I've met through some of my mastermind groups and you like them in the beginning and as time goes on, you either like them more, you like them less and it goes both ways. There are people that I've met that I thought, oh, this is probably somebody I can do business with or bring on as a client. And then as time went on, I started to realize, okay, these guys are not 
overly ethical and they're kind of flaky and they're here today and they're there tomorrow because, you know, they're suffering from shiny object syndrome. So, you know, what you described, I think, is a good way to go. I don't really have a bulletproof test to anybody. I think what the best someone can do is get to know them, look at the work that they've done, ask a lot of intelligent questions, do your own homework and research so you can ask intelligent questions. If asking for references makes sense, then do that. But anybody giving you references is going to give you their best anyway. So I'm not sure how much weight that carries. If you're looking at a contractor, you could look at work that they've done in the past, you know, just kind of vet out different jobs that they've done. Some professions like contractors, you can look up reviews online, you know, whether it's Angie's List or whatever else it may be, you can see what other people are saying about professionals in terms of the quality of their work and their communication and how well they deliver on their results. And so I think if you do a bunch of that, it's not 100%. Maybe you'll get 60, 70, 80, 90% of what you need to know, but that may be enough to move forward and start a relationship and put your toe in the water and walk before you run. I don't know what else to say about that. I mean, I can look at a renovation job and a scope of work and just because of experience, prior experience, I have an idea of how well that work is and and whether they're cutting corners or not. So if you already have that experience in whatever profession it is, then you could use that experience as part of your test. If you don't, then you have to gain that experience. Yeah, I think so. I think you really have to try to make yourself knowledgeable as much as you can and maybe spend a significant amount of time with them. And sometimes what I'll do with people as professionals, you know, kind of to set myself up for a great deal or a great experience with that person is get some type of work product from them. That would be somewhat of like a medium grade challenge as a test run, especially if I don't know anything about the industry. And then I'll hire a secondary professional to then critique that work product. And then to have the two professionals in a sense kind of fighting against each other will then give me more ideas of how are people actually evaluating, you know, good versus bad, like in this industry as a way to do it. It's actually a really cheap strategy to use with attorneys and lawyers, by the way. I don't know if you've ever done that, Marco. I haven't. It's a lot of fun. You get a lot of like really arrogant professionals fighting with each other about why the other person is wrong. And you can really learn a lot for like $100. <laughs> and it's just kind of entertaining to watch a cockfight every now and again. So, yeah, but I, I love think it. <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to say thank you for coming on and being with us this worst deal episode here at the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. And today, I think I personally learned a lot from you about how you can take something that's a great business model and try an offshoot of that to you think is going to have some good returns and sometimes it can go sideways on you as you look to expand with it. And I think that's important for us all to be aware of, right? Where things can start well and maybe to pull the drain or pull the plug earlier in the process rather than later if you can identify that. Probably a great lesson for all of us. So Marco, um, where would people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about the turnkey investing or other work that you're involved with? Yeah, thank you, Scott. I appreciate that. Well, I'll give two websites if you don't mind. The uh, core website, like the main business, if you will, is Norada Real Estate Investments. And the website there is noradarealestate.com, N-O-R-A-D-A, noradarealestate.com. And then we have now, fortunately, a top 20 podcast on iTunes. And so that podcast's home is passiverealestateinvesting.com. And there's a ton of free information there. So passiverealestateinvesting.com. Nice. That's great, Marco. I think that's really great with all the work that you've done to be able to build up such a great audience of people. You're so experienced with what you do. I've appeared on your show as well, too. And I hear great things from all the people that work with you that call into my office. 
So I just want to congratulate you on developing that kind of community of people. And thank you. Yeah, that's Appreciate great, it. man. I think that's all we got today for the Real Estate Nerds podcast on our Bad Beats episode here. Everybody, thanks for tuning in. And we'll be in touch soon. Until then, happy investing. That's all for this Bad Beats episode. I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith, with the Real Estate Nerds podcast. Did you see yourself in any part of that story? I know I did. If you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in the sleeping masses of what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day. Thanks, and I'll see you again soon.